Thank you so much for leading us this morning in song, and what a beautiful way to begin the service. If you are new with us today, we are going through a series called Rooted, and what that is focusing on is our, the, our confession of faith, the statements of faith that um, the EMMC conference or the Evangelical Minute Mission Conference is, uh, has and is a conference that we are affiliated with. And so when we switched our name from EMMC to Deer Run, um, we stayed with the same conference and we um, held to the same uh, bylaws and, uh, and a lot of those things. And so uh, the other thing that we st- um, kept is our confession of faith. And so what we've been doing in the last few uh, weeks is just unpacking these. And so we're going to continue to do that this morning. And today I want to talk um, on peace and reconciliation. And so I just need to throw a few uh, little things out there before we begin this. I absolutely expect that we will not all agree. And so uh, this is one of those conversations that is important to have. But at the same time, recognizing that this is a conversation that um, we may not see eye to eye on. And so um, I, I just think it's important for us to know that. The other thing I think that's important is just to recognize that I'm not here today to build a case for what we believe. I'm simply here to tell you what we believe. And so even the Bible verses and things like that that I'm going to be using today uh, is just simply there for you to know this is what we base our beliefs on. And then lastly, um, I welcome feedback. I welcome pushback. I'm very, very comfortable with people not agreeing with everything. Um, it is something that happens uh, quite often in my, li- in my line of work where people may have some questions. But I want to give you a little rule, though, uh, maybe just an, a rule of engagement. And this is for when you come talk to me or any other uh, staff member or church person or anybody else in your life. When you are going to have a conversation with someone that you do not agree with, it is very important to start with the mindset that we are having this conversation not to change their mind. Because if you start the conversation to change my mind or I start the conversation to change my mind, then, is what, then we have what we call an argument. And an argument is not as healthy as a discussion. And so sometimes it's very important when we have um, areas in our lives where we may not see eye to eye on, that what we want to do is have the conversation in order to hear from the other person a perspective that we do not have. And it's an excellent way to educate ourselves and also educate them. And sometimes on those topics, we just simply say, God bless you, and we will agree to disagree and move forward. And I think that that is a very, very healthy way um, to deal with what I call pushback. I don't like to say I disagree with you. I'm like, I'm going to push back a little bit and throw in some different information. So, whoo, that was a long, uh, that was a freebie. Um, You know, normally, first service had to pay extra for that, but uh, you guys get that for free. Um, But I am so excited to open this today and to talk through this and to dive into this and see what we can discover and what we can learn. And so here is our confession of faith regarding peace and reconciliation. We believe that God offers peace and reconciliation to all humanity through the works of Christ on the cross, followers of Christ's law, Followers of Christ's law of love affirm the sacredness of life as they make peace in personal, social, and international situations. So this confession of faith could be broken down into sort of two categories or two two points. One is the whole area of peace and reconciliation, and we'll we'll unpack that. And then the other one is the area of, of the sacredness of life or the value of life. And we'll unpack that as well because you really... Peace and reconciliation and the value of life, they go hand in hand because if we don't value life, then what's the point of peace? 
Okay, and if we're, if we're always pushing for war, then clearly we probably do not value life. And so they go very much hand in hand. And so today, I want to unpack this conversation, though, um, from the Anabaptist standpoint. And so it's important for you to understand that we as an EMMC, or, uh, as an EMMC conference would very much hold to an Anabaptist um, you know, theology or view, viewpoint. And so I will be unpacking this this morning through the lens or the standpoint or, or understanding from the Anabaptists. And so I want to give you a very, very, very brief history of the Anabaptists. This is just barely even a taste, and so, um, but it's important for you to understand where this line of thinking comes from. And if you don't understand much about the Anabaptist movement, uh, I would encourage you to go and read. There's a lot of resources out there on this, on this very topic. The Reformation, and if you don't know what the Reformation is, the Reformation is when the, the, the group of people decided that they were going to change um, the way church was done. And that's you know, just a glimpse of it again. But the Reformation fever touched many parts of 16th century Europe. In Switzerland, the movement was led by a man named Ulrich Swingley. And uh, Swingley was uh, one of the early, early members of the Reformation. And he was supported, or among those who supported Swingley, was a very energetic university student called Conrad Grable. And, uh, you know, we had the privilege of seeing both the monument for Conrad Grable, and also this is a picture of the home where, um, I'm sorry, the monument for Swingley, and this is the home where Conrad Grable used to live. But soon, uh, Grable and his friends, and people like Felix Mons and them, they became somewhat frustrated and impatient with Swingley because Swingley was moving far too slow in their minds. And so while they supported most of Swingley's um, you know, um, ideas and reform and what needed to be reformed, they felt that he was moving far too slow. And so Gabriel, uh, uh, Grable and his friends felt that the church must be separated from the state and be free from the political control and made up of members who had joined the church through adult baptism. Swingley, on the other hand, still believed that, you should, that there was a lot of things that should change in the church, but he still held very much to the idea that you should join the church through infant baptism, and he felt that the church and state should stay um, to, together. And so this created some tension, and this created, you know, Swingley was on this side, and the other guys were on this side a little bit, and they're saying you need to move faster. And back in those times when you were an infant, you were baptized, and then you were also a member of the church. And this is, you know, the whole church and state, uh, state thing that was, that was at that time. By 1524, it became very clear that these young radicals were going to separate from Swingley. And so on January 21st, 1525, Grable and his friends and 15 of his friends were meeting in the home of Felix Mons. And you see the, the monument there. Uh, when we were in Europe a number of years ago, uh, we had a chance to actually go to this very place and to see some of these areas, and it was very moving to see this place. And, and what happened to Felix Mons is he was actually drowned in this river. And so there's the monument, and you can see the, the river, and this is the area where they believe that he was drowned, and this is the, uh, also the area where they believe his mother stood on the bed of the river, the, you know, the riverbed, and called out to her son you know, to stay strong, to stay strong. And ultimately what they did is they lowered Felix's body over the edge and he was drowned for believing 
in, in, uh, in this Reformation for believing in the separation of church and state and those things and for believing in, in second baptism. And so we will unpack that a little bit more. And so these men, they got together and it was at a prayer meeting uh, where a man by the name of George Blarock uh, made his emotional appeal. And this is one of the 15 who was gathered there in Felix Monza's home. And this man stood up and he made this emotional appeal. He says, Conrad, I beg you for God's sake, give me the true Christian baptism. And by, with that, you could say the Reformation really took off. Because everything soon changed. There's a book out there called Conrad Grable, Son of Zurich. And, uh, and this is a write-up on what happened at that meeting. It says, Conrad Grable reached for water as he poured it on the bowed, balding head of his fiery disciple. He cannot know in, that, in this act is inaugurated a fellowship that shall um, spread beyond Europe to every continent. And now George himself moves around the circle, baptizing each upon his request. They commission each other to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world and covenant in an unshakable bond to keep the faith. So in this moment, these men really had no idea what they had just begun. The reason they're called the Anabaptists, because Anabaptists means to rebaptize or rebaptizers. And so this was considered blasphemy. This was considered something that, that could not be done. And you cannot be rebaptized. And if you are rebaptized, it is an unforgivable sin, they believed, the, the church believed at that time. The Anabaptists, they said, well, if I was baptized and I did not have a relationship with Jesus, then I want to receive a baptism upon my confession of faith in Jesus. And this was unacceptable. And many, many, many of these men and women who did this were eventually executed because of that. Baptism was an external act by which the Anabaptists expressed their rejection of the state church. They took the position on a number of other, they took key positions on a number of other things, and one of them is what we're going to touch on today, but they also took a, a very strong position on the whole area of government, and then obviously on peace and reconciliation, which we're going to unpack more today. Um, the early Anabaptists believed that the government was given because of man's sin. They believed that if man had not sinned, there would be no need for a government because we would all be under the rule of God. And if you go back to when King Saul was you know, elected, the people said, give us a king. And God's like, I am your king. You should follow me. And, and they warned Samuel to tell the people, if you put a king in place, he's going to want taxes from you and all this stuff. And so you really see a connection here. And so they believe that the government is there only because of sin. So it belonged to the law. Okay? So they don't, they don't believe, or they believe that the church, on the other hand, was given out of grace, and so it belonged to the gospel. They believe that the kingdom of Jesus, the church, was characterized by peace, forgiveness, nonviolence, and patience. And so these are some of the very key things that they held to. They believe that the government was appointed by God and performed a divine function, but, only, but could only serve what they considered the kingdom of this earth. In other words, they believe that the church should have, I mean, the government should have no role in the church. And hence the idea of separation from uh, church and state, where the church is not run by the government, so that when you are in a church, that you are free 
to choose what you believe, not dictated to you by what the government believes. Now Martin Luther, another key member in the Reformation, and the Anabaptists agreed on this topic, but they parted ways when it came to the involvement of a Christian in government. Luther believed Christians should participate even if it meant to kill a neighbor or to go to war. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, um, they said that a Christian should not participate in government out of love for their neighbor. Okay, so Luther, on the one hand, said, yes, Christians should be in the government even if that meant going to war, even if that meant killing a neighbor. And the Christians or the Anabaptists, they said, no, no, no. Everyone is our neighbor. Everyone is, you know, a neighbor, and we are to love our neighbors. And so this created some tension. They felt that a Christian had no right to ever end the life of a human because it was contrary to the commands of Jesus. And so if you and I here today don't see eye to eye on every area that we're going to touch on, just know that these early reformers already immediately did not know what to do with some of this. Their hearts were tugged in different directions, and they, and they wrestled with what Scripture meant, and they, they did not really understand at times, how do we apply this to the circumstances, to the environment, to the situations that we are in? And so it must have been a difficult, difficult thing for them. So it's important for us to know that our statement of faith comes from this Anabaptist viewpoint. And so let's unpack this confession of faith a little bit more. One of the things, one of the key elements of the confession of faith is that we believe that peace comes through Christ. The church demonstrates the power of Christ's work by its life together. By the peace that we have through Christ, we are brought together in peace there are many differences in God's people, and still we find our common foundation in Jesus Christ. See, the peace that we are seeking, the peace that we are longing for, the peace that we are going after is the peace that we find in Christ, not the peace that is here to be found here on this earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Just stop there for a moment and ask yourself, now what would happen in my life if I applied that principle to everything? That from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Amazing, eh? Imagine the, how that would change things. And this is what Paul is saying, that we, from here on, we will view the world, we will view everyone through the lens of Jesus. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciled the world to himself in Christ, but counting pe not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are, as a body of Christ, we are a community of reconciliation. I love that. 
I love that the church is supposed to be a community of reconciliation. That when there's tension in the world, when there's, when there's divide, when there is different points of view, the church is the place where people are reconciled, where families are reconciled, where spouses are reconciled, where, where uh, you know, racism and all those areas are reconciled. We are a community of reconciliation. God intended to bless the world through the church, through his people. So I think this is something that we need to see that because God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, we must in all things strive towards reconciliation. That's the ministry that we were given. We are to be you know, in the uh, ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for reconciliation. So we strive for unity and friendship because Jesus prayed that we would be one. And we have found peace with God through Jesus Christ. And we, and we now invite others to find this same peace. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says this, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, it's important for you to understand, Peter wrote this to a church that was experiencing tremendous persecution. But in this, he says, you have to break the cycle If you're going to repay evil every single time with evil, if you're going to repay insult every single time with insult, it's a cycle that just never ends. You kill one of mine, I'll kill two of you. You kill two of mine, I'll kill four of you. And the cycle just never ends, and it just grows and grows and grows. And so Peter says, if you want to break the cycle, insert blessing. Insert good. So when someone does something evil to you, when someone insults you, instead of returning it with what you received, return it with blessing. And I wonder if we would think for a moment in some of the tensions that we are in right now in different, in, with different individuals or whatever it may be, I wonder how that situation would change if in that moment we would say, I know this is what you just did, but I forgive you. I bless you. And whatever whatever it may be. I think this is a tremendous teaching. We are to find peace always through Christ. Another key element of this confession of faith is the whole concept of the law of love. Followers of Jesus Christ are to live by a law that can restore the relationships of broken through sin or by sin, death, and Satan. We are to love God with our whole being and we are to love others as our neighbor. You know, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Some of you may have heard this story of a man by the name of Dirk Willems. Um, this is a, one of the Anabaptists way back. And he had been captured. And he'd been in prison. And so he was held there. And so when, um, you know, the time came that he was pretty sure that he was going to be executed. Uh, so he decided he would escape. And so on a winter um, day, you know, he on a winter during the winter, he decided to escape. And so, if you've ever been to a little town called Asperin, Netherlands, uh, there's this river that goes all the way around this town. And so, on a winter day, he took off across the thin ice of this river. He made it across, but the guy pursuing him fell through. And so, he called out for help. And so, this is where the story gets a little bit crazy. Is 
instead of continuing to flee and run, Dirk turns around and rescues the man, helps him out, and you know, saves his life. And it's said that the man would have released him, but his commanding officer was on the shore and ordered that he be arrested. And so Dirk was arrested and recaptured, and on May 16, 1569, he was burnt at the stake. Now, if this story isn't crazy enough already, on that day that he was to be burnt, a strong east wind blew the flames away from his upper body, prolonging his death for a long, long time. Now, a very normal practice at that time, and I promise not to be graphic, a very normal practice at that time was to, to clamp the tongue or to remove it. And obviously the reason for this was because so many people became, were converted at these executions because while these people were dying, they were sharing the gospel with Jesus and people were just amazed at their faithfulness and at, and at how even in the midst of that agony they were declaring God. And so the same wind that prolonged Dirk's suffering and, and his death was also now carrying his um, words because they did not do this, they did not remove his tongue. And so he's crying out to God and crying out to God. And the same wind that was prolonging his death was also carrying his words far away. And it's said that the judge finally could handle it no more and out of regret and embarrassment ordered a quick death. But not after Dirk had cried out some 70 times. So you need to understand, these early Anabaptists, they did not just preach love, they lived it. The early church did not just preach love, they lived it. Jesus did not just preach love, he lived it. And today, around the world, there are Christians who are in very similar situations. And they are not just preaching love, they are living it every single day. So after receiving God's gracious love, we now bear the responsibility to share God's love. In the church, the law of love provides a standard in appreciating differences, offering forgiveness, and healing broken lives. In the world, the law of love provides incentive to move beyond our boundaries. So in our world, the world that we live in, the law of love will force us every now and then to step out of our boundaries, to go beyond what we are comfortable with because we must express and share the love of Jesus to everyone. John chapter 13, verse 34 says this, A new command I give you, love one another. There's no exception. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. But this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciple, if you love one another. So God calls us to love persons in our community. He calls us to love the strangers entering our borders and those living beyond our borders. If we are willing to accept and embrace the love that Jesus has given us, we cannot withhold that love from anyone. We must be willing to share the love that we have received from Jesus. And what I mean here by sharing it is not verbally sharing it. I mean expressing it in how we live our lives. In the same way that Jesus expressed his love for us, not only in words, but in what he did we must be willing to express our love to every other person, every person. Another key area is the whole area of the sacredness of life, and this is tied very much with the first part. God has created and continues to nourish the gift of life. 
Our church will continue to be a place where life is highly respected. We will affirm the dignity of all people, including the preborn, the handicapped, the elderly, and anyone who is often considered on the outskirts of society. We will uphold the dignity of all persons. Psalm 139 verse 13 says this, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in the book before one of them came to be. So at the very point of conception, God already says, I know you, and I value you. You, I have a plan for you. We must in every situation uphold the dignity and the sacredness of life. All human life is sacred and must be upheld All people, even our enemies, are created in the image of God. Jesus on the cross cried out, Father, forgive them. Who was he speaking to? You've heard me say this before. Jesus was speaking to the very men or about the very men who were driving nails into his body. He was speaking to the very institution that was blessing it and ordering it. Jesus said, forgive them for what they do. You know, they do not have a clue what they're doing. Forgive them. Forgive them. What a beautiful expression, again, of love and the value of life and and knowing that even these men who were doing this evil, evil thing, their lives were valuable. We will only support the means of resolving international disputes that promote justice and preserve life. We will not... We will support, sorry, we will support the privilege of life for lawbreakers in our society. And we will seek to enhance the quality of life for the poor and persons at risk. We will provide support for families and persons with broken relationships. So in all these things, we will uphold the value of life. Now, will this be easy? Of course not. And we will be tested. And we will want to, you know... Do things quickly, but the law of love and the dignity of every human being, the sacredness of life, requires that we um, you know, move into these difficult situations and that we at all times support those who need support. And then finally, the whole concept of making peace. The church is an ambassador calling people to reconciliation with God. We are peacemakers proclaiming the good news, the good news that we can have peace with God. We gain knowledge of peace through studying the scripture. We desire to model peace by actively seeking reconciliations between individuals and groups within the church. Romans chapter 14 verse 19 says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Now Paul is writing this to a church at a time when there was a lot of division among or there was tension about you know, hindering one another. And so Paul says, you know what, I know that there are tensions, I know that there are areas in the church where you hinder one another. So in every situation, make every effort to do that which leads to peace. And so we will support a non-violent approach to resolving conflict. 
We encourage governments to promote justice and compassion for their citizens. We believe in working for peace, using peaceful means to the point of personal suffering and death. We present the gospel with love, with the love of Christ. And like Christ, we trust God for victory. That's a key thing. We are willing to suffer personally because we are not seeking only peace on this earth. We are seeking peace with God in all things, knowing that God will bring victory, even if at this moment it costs us something. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, it says this, The very fact, and he's, Paul's writing to a church who is dealing with lawsuits, he says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have, you have been completely defeated already. Look at what he says. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. It's almost as if God is frustrated, Paul is frustrated, and says, just, it's okay to be wronged every now and then. It's okay to be cheated for the sake of peace. Now, we are not talking here about abusive relationships. That's not what we're talking about. That's a whole different conversation. But what we, are, what we are talking about is sometimes in this life we will need, we will need to be, able, to be willing to sacrifice and to suffer for the sake of peace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 again. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Imagine for a moment if God would not have been willing to sacrifice the way he did, we would not have a relationship with Jesus today. Now, in conclusion, I just want to say one of, one of the things that often happens is that when we have this conversation, people want to have these conversations through the extremes. Okay? So when we talk about loving our neighbors and we talk about you know, peace and reconciliation, we talk about you know, non-resistance, the comment that I've often heard from people and they'll say things like, oh, so you mean if your wife Maria was being tortured and someone was hurting her and they were you know, doing this and this and you would just stand there and do nothing? Oh, so you're saying that we should just let Hitler do whatever he did? See, we want to always have this very um, sensitive conversation through these extremes. See, the truth is, I don't think any of us really know what to do with such extremes. But I do know that people before us have faced extreme circumstances and they were willing to remain faithful to God. So today, the question for us is not what will we do in these extremes that we may never confront. Rather, the question that we must wrestle with is, will I live in peace? And will I strive towards reconciliation with the people and the circumstances that I am facing today? And so if you want to have this conversation immediately just focused on the extremes, I think we distract from the true conversation. Because every single one of us here today is going to need to wrestle a little bit with, what will I do with this? Am I an ambassador for reconciliation? Am I striving for peace in all the relationships and all the areas that I am in? So I hope that this morning you've been caused to rest a little bit and I hope that as we go from here that we will continue to seek what God has planned for us. Amen.